This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name is Ralph Tucker. Today we continue our chats with members of the ABC Grandstand Rugby League team and I was thrilled to catch up with Ruan Sims who was a new addition to the team in 2017, obviously having a great pedigree in the sport with brothers Ashton, Tarek and Corbin but also forging her own name through two World Cup winning performances with the Gillaroos. I think you'll really enjoy this chat with Ruan, who I find to be determined, warm, smart and engaging. Hello, Ruan Sims. Hello, Ralphie. Hot hands, Tucker. Hot hands. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> I am delighted to say you are the first two-time world champion that I've had on this podcast, <laughs> so very excited about that. We'll get to that in a sec also, but I want to talk to you more so about the year that you had last year joining the ABC Grandstand team and how you found that, I guess, transition from, I guess, player to doing a bit of broadcasting stuff. How was it? It was really, really exciting. And I've spoken about it before, but the reason for me that it was so exciting was because growing up, all we ever watched was ABC or we listened to ABC radio. So when I was approached by Andrew Moore with ABC Grandstand, I was trying to play it really cool. I said, yeah, 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 that is something I would be interested in. Yes, inside, me is doing jumping jacks and backflips. As soon as I finished, I got on the family WhatsApp with my brothers and sister and I messaged them and it was hilarious. They were all so jealous and they were in awe because ABC Grandstand was the bee's knees when we were growing up. So for uh, for me, it was a massive, uh, massive achievement to be even asked and I had a, an amazing time with the team. You did a lot of Saturdays last year um, mm-hmm. working with Andrew Moore and, and Andrew Ryan and uh, the first game that you actually did, you had to call your brother, uh, Tarek, who was playing for St George, Cogger Oval, I think from memory it was wet as. Um, so that was a real, I guess, eye-opener in terms of what was required on, on that particular day. It was, and it was a real trial by fire as well because it was the first time I'd done any kind of radio broadcasting and it was also, we did, I think it was a four or five hour pre-game show and then we did the game at Cogra and as you're exactly right, it was pelting down with rain. It was Tarek's first game of the season at the Dragons of uh, 2017, playing against Penrith Panthers, which my cousin was playing in, uh, Regan Campbell-Gillard. So it was a real, uh, real family affair that day and I absolutely loved it and loved it even more that the Dragons got a, a huge win up on the board too. Take me through it. What were the the nerves like, I guess? What was the feeling like? Like you said, you hadn't really sort of done it before. Um, we'd interviewed you quite a, a few times on the radio, so you were definitely comfortable with that. You're an ambassador with the NRL. You're used to doing a lot of talks in schools and public speaking with corporate leaders. But what was it like knowing that you had to sit there and, first of all, take calls from listeners, contribute to the 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 program in a sort of analytical sense mm-hmm. and then also be based on the sideline for the game. Yeah, the, the pre-game show I think really helped me roll into what was happening uh, on the sideline. It uh, definitely helped me work out a few of the nerves. As you know, Andrew Moore's amazing, so he made it really easy for me. Andrew Wine is fantastic as well and, and I, think even, I think Matthew Elliott was with us that day. And they all made me feel so comfortable and so welcome. And then when I got on to, down onto the sideline, at first I did find myself just going along with whatever 
conversation piece that we were discussing at that time, at that point of time in the game, until I found my feet a little bit more, I felt a little bit more comfortable, and then actually started uh, throwing back a little bit of my own analysis. And I think that's sort of one area that the game that we lack at the moment is a female voice in the commentary analysis, not just a presenter, not an MC, not a journalist, not a reporter, but actually analysing the game on the fly. And it was really, really exciting to be a part of something that was brand new and I just wanted to put my best foot forward and uh, as I said working with the team that we had made it really really easy especially Matty Elliott he's so incisive with his comments with the game and it does help me think outside of the square as well and I think it actually did help my game as a player as well being able to analyze live on the fly Uh, it really did help me uh, grow as a player. And one of the things I guess in that situation where probably thinking two or three steps ahead in the fact that, okay, you've seen something really good, but then the play moves on so quickly. So what you have said quickly becomes almost redundant in many senses because there's so much activity that happens in a game. And if you've got, like, Andrew calling the game and and Andrew Ryan making a comment, you've kind of got to add value to what they've already said and that can be hard at times can't it it really can and sometimes something amazing that has happened in the game uh, previously only gets you know a very very small uh, bit point and you want to go back to it so you have to tie it into what's happening there and I did find that I had to either think three steps ahead or make note of what happened you've sat next to me on the sideline I'm scribbling up and down my program (laughs) making notes of things and uh, just trying to be able to as you said add a bit more value and add a different perspective to what's already been said. Was it hard not to get caught ball watching and I know like because I don't really sort of contribute in any way shape or form apart from helping you guys out with injury updates and and different things on the sideline but it must be difficult just being I can because I can see you and Dean was another one Dean Hallitow was another one that just got so immersed in actually watching the game forgetting almost at times that you have to contribute to the broadcast absolutely and you really do you really do have to be switched on the whole time because yeah, you can, and I do. I almost ride every single play, and especially when my brothers are playing or people that I know really well, I'll ride every play, and I feel like I'm involved in the game, and I'll get you know almost exhausted by just the amount of energy that you're putting into it. And yeah, I did have to work on really trying to pair that back and make sure that I thought about okay, I need to be analysing this, and I need to be able to contribute some commentary towards this. But then again, sometimes something happens, and you've heard me on the sideline just whooping and carrying on because (laughs) I absolutely loved it. What did you find the most difficult part of being a part of the team this year, or last year, sorry? Not being able to do it as often as I would have liked. I think that was, uh, if I'd been able to do it uh, every single week, I think it would have been yeah, a lot uh, smoother for me. Uh, just, but with my obviously with the playing schedule that we had last year was was really really heavy, and there were times where I could do one or two games in a weekend, and there were times where I couldn't do two ga- any games for two weeks in a row. So uh, this year, I'm hoping for a little bit more consistency. Yeah, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Dean mentioned he was his own worst critic, and I'd imagine you'd be the same. I mean, you come from a professional environment where. You're getting feedback, you're giving feedback, and you're also very self-critical of the things that you do from a professional athlete point of view. And I'd imagine that it would be the same sort of transition when you're doing something like radio. Absolutely. And I always 
did ask for a lot of feedback as well because I knew that I was so new to it that I wanted to, to learn and be better. And uh, at the same time was uh, very, very critical of what I was doing, what I was saying. And But I was very lucky as well because I had uh, my mother would listen in constantly and she would give me a few tips and of the trade, so to speak. You were involved in that. Saturday broadcast with Andrew Moore and Andrew Ryan, but you're also part of the so-called second Sydney team with Corbin Middlemass and Johnny Gibbs. So Mm -hmm. it would have been a different vibe and a different feeling going from each of those two different teams and having to adapt and just find your little niche within both those teams. So we kind of really sort of threw it out there as a challenge for you to sort of adapt into two different scenarios where one was pre-game, post-game and game, whereas a lot of the stuff that you did with the the second Sydney team was just purely on the game side of things. Yeah, yeah, it was... It was very different, but I found that I just had to learn to know when the throw down to me was coming up. So I could read Andrew. Obviously, I'd done a lot of work with Andrew early on, so I knew I always sort of had an inkling when he was going to throw to me unless I was so caught up in the game that I I missed the cues. Uh, And then when I started working with Corbin and Johnny Gibbs as well, I had to learn when Corbin was going to throw to me, and then Johnny actually started throwing to me a lot as well. So I needed to learn the cues from each of the people of when they were going to come down and ask for my opinion, or especially reading the game. And as I said to you, being that three steps ahead, that if there was something going to occur or something had occurred within the game, I know that uh, we would have a discussion point for about 20 or 30 seconds and then it would probably come down to me. So I would need to have something ready to go and and be able to contribute to that conversation. Doing the interviews on the field post-game must have given you a a real buzz as well, like chatting to the the guys that you would have seen running out on the on the field for for so many years and you know a lot of them personally obviously through your association with the NRL and of course your, your brothers so how was that for you stepping into that situation talking to them about games and what a lot of I guess players and, and ex-players find most difficult is talking to the players on the losing side because it's not really a, an enjoyable task knowing how much they've invested in a game. No it is quite difficult but it is an it's an interesting experience and I think as well, I, I found it a little bit different because because I am a player and I'm a current player and then I do know a lot of these men that are running around on the field and they know me either through uh, my work with the NRL or as a player or with my brothers. I actually felt like I got a little bit more out of them than they might have given away, so to speak, especially on the losing side because you know what it feels like. You know how heart-wrenching it is and how... how absolutely devastating especially towards the back end of the year that's when I found it the most difficult was obviously when uh, teams were being knocked out of the final series and having to speak to those players I can't thank them enough for taking the time to talk to me when I know they probably just wanted to leave and go and sit in the sheds with their mates but it was a very interesting experience and I will have to commend them all for the respect that they showed me uh, on the field as well. That's one thing I was going to mention there respect from the players it was really evident in a number of occasions where I think you were almost taken aback by some of the perhaps younger guys that, that you knew you by reputation and they were actually pleased to come and, and chat to you after a game. I think I kind of remember it may have been at, at Penrith or it may have been a, a game involving Penrith. The, the young fullback Dylan Edwards was really complimentary to you off air in terms of, oh, wow, she's coming to interview me. 
yeah. was that a bit of a sort of a, a funny feeling for you? It really, really was. And I think that just shows how far our game has come and the work that we've been doing behind the scenes. It doesn't get spoken about. A lot of the work that we do with the players and that the players do with the junior clubs and their junior players around respectful relationships and around each individual uh group that make up our NRL and having respect for what each group does it really really showed and I was as you yeah you were there you saw it Dylan was very very complimentary and he was uh, an absolute gentleman and every single player that I spoke to throughout the year were very very respectful and I think that is a wonderful step in the right direction for the game. How is it from your point of view the fact that the game has come that long way where the sexist attitudes that may have prevailed 15, 20 years ago have now, I would say, very much disappeared. So this is a a good reflection on the the game in terms of how far it actually has come that when we first got you on board, we didn't want you on board as the token female. We wanted you on board for your expertise as a a player and be able to, to comment on the game that you love so much. Yeah, the change within the game, even in the last five years five to ten years has been absolutely phenomenal it is something that it's truly it's difficult to believe because you think about where we started and and how it all was and especially the women who played before me and captain our country before me and captain our state what they had to endure and what they went through to get the game to the position where we could then push it into a professional space is amazing and I think, especially within a game that is so male-dominated, men can be our best allies. They really, really can. And seeing the attitudes of the younger players coming through now, and the older players as well, but you see the attitudes of the playing group when you have uh, players of the calibre of Greg Inglis and Matt Scott sitting on the sideline on our, with our bench in the May Test match, supporting us, coming to our trainings for the May Test match, supporting us. That just shows the rest of the playing group that this is serious. Everybody, Everybody's behind this. Everybody believes this. And you can see the quality on the field. And I think that's what the players are really coming to respect, is that the passion that we have for the game, the love that we have for the game, and how we play the game. And that is also what is winning over, I think, a few of those harder heads out there in the general public. Do you feel as though you've forged your own identity in terms of when you first started playing you would have been known as Ruan Sims, sister of the Sims brothers. Now people know you for you, the player, the broadcaster, the ambassador for the NRL. So in in that sense, the publicity around you, while it was good to probably leverage that in the beginning, now you're your own identity, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is. And definitely when I did start, and I think that a few people... Uh, thought that maybe I'd been selected just because of who my brothers were and I'm hoping that I proved that wrong, proved them wrong along the way and it definitely is something that I always used the my family ties with the sport to help to drive our game as a whole, not just as me as an individual, because I think especially if you're going to be a team player, you can't be thinking about yourself first. You have to think of the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is making women's rugby league a professional sport for women that they can play in the future. And that was a dream that I had or a vision that I had from very, very early on. And 
I wanted to use everything at my disposal to be able to drive it to where I wanted to see it. And along the way, I have been fortunate enough that my profile has grown and I have forged my own identity. And But that's only through actually applying myself to things that I was passionate about. So my, my NRL ambassador role I'm extremely passionate about because we drive really important social issues and we deliver them using Rugby League, which has such a huge footprint within Australia. We use it to drive those social messages and hopefully enact a little bit of social change. And then having the opportunity to do my media work along the way, which has again increased uh, my profile and uh, has led me to the lofty heights of sitting here with you doing the podcast. <laughs> I don't know whether that's that lofty, but anyway, no one is a bigger champion of, of your cause than your brothers. Um, we had them on the program this year um, at varying stages, and they all speak in awe of you, of what you're doing within the game, your talents and abilities. It must really give you a, a great sense of satisfaction that they are so much behind you and they're so supportive of your career and the, I guess the, in many ways the, the path that you've kind of forged for them as well. Yeah, I, whenever I listen to them speak, it always surprises me. <laughs> Not in a, I can't believe they think that of me, but it, it's just more of a, it surprises me and it, it humbles me at the same time because we are a very close family, all seven of us. Uh, we're very, very tight. We always tell each other the truth. We never sugarcoat things. And we always keep each other on on a level, level head. And that comes from our parents. And when I listen to the boys speak it, I get really teary. I get very, you've seen me, I get very emotional because it's uh, it means a lot to me. Their opinion, uh, my family's opinion of me is... is the biggest driver of what I do and and helps lift me up when I feel like I'm falling or flagging or things are being very, very difficult outside of it. My family are the ones that help lift me up and, you know, I, they wrote us some letters uh, in the lead-up to the World Cup and reading the words that my siblings wrote down, uh, you know, brought me to tears immediately. And, but it also drives me and, and helps keep me going. The Sims Files was one of the more entertaining segments that we had on the ABC Grandstand program last year. Um, started off with your mum, Jackie, who, I must must be said, took a little bit of time to warm up, but once she got going, she was quite happy to sort of, you know, get involved Throw and deliver the, the good goods and uh, put the word out there that you were looking for a man, etc., etc. Um <laughs> What was that like listening to them talk about you and discuss things that happened in your, your childhood? I must say, I love the Sims family. I think they're great. So many stories came out. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. And look, that's only scratching the surface of our family <laughs> uh, stories. But um, I, I, I really loved it because everybody sees a side of me that is very professional and uh, I like to to help out as much as possible and I'm very direct and sort of so not many people get to see the playful side that I do have so it was very interesting for uh, everybody to hear that and it was mainly uh, the funniest just listening to Andrew Moore's or seeing his reactions when the boys would be telling me a story and he'd be slowly inching further away from me or he'd be saying yeah I thought you just this really nice person, but now I realise you're just not. <laughs> uh, but that's what happens when you're the eldest of five kids. You've got to throw your weight around every now and then. Well, that's right. Gumboot throwing, the whole box and dice, terrorising 
Paul Corbin's <laughs> doll, David. Um, some really great stories that, that, that came came out. And I, I still think that he might be quite attached to that doll. Yeah, it was a bear. It was this massive bear, David, and he was. Mum even made him a, a cape for the, for the bear. And Corbin used to just, he used to be able to, he's one of those kids that, would just amuse himself for hours on end and you wouldn't have to worry about what he was doing because, you know, he'd be off with David, like he'd be on the trampoline wrestling David or they'd be under the trampoline wrestling or <laughs> they'd be in the sprinkler and mum would be yelling at Corbin because David's this giant bear that's going to be saturated and stink like wet dog for the rest of the week and you know, just stuff like that. So, yeah, I think uh, Corbin was very uh, attached to that bear and that is obviously why I used it as leverage. I really um, also enjoyed the fact that you know, I approached Ashton to do it, and he was obviously overseas, the UK, playing with um, Warrington, and mm-hmm. I think he stayed up till like two or three in the morning just so that we could give him a, a call, and he was only too happy to do it. I think that the studio broke down at one stage, so we're going to be an hour longer, and he was just like, "Yeah, no worries." It's just like your whole family just seems to have that same sort of relaxed, engaging personality. And this must be a credit to your, your parents as well. It is, it is. And neither of my parents will take any credit for it. But we will. We all say it, we owe them everything. They've made us who we are. They've moulded us into the, the human beings that we are today. And obviously our other experiences along the way have helped shape us and refine it. But everything that we do and all of our morals and all that come from our parents and uh, I can't thank them enough for the upbringing that they gave us because it was yeah phenomenal came out with some great stories just a few little twitches here and there but nothing nothing too serious (laughs) um we'll talk about the other family I guess the ABC grandstand team Mm -hmm. that we sort of mentioned that you, you came on board this year what were your thoughts working with Andrew Moore this year well I have been, I was asked last year who I thought the best commentator in the game is and without any hesitation, Andrew Moore, easily. Just because you can, when you hear him speak about a game, even when he was doing the television commentary for the World Cup this year, you ride every play with him. His excitement in his voice brings you along with it and he is extremely professional, extremely engaging and I really did feel as though he had become a real mentor for me last year and I appreciated everything that he did for me, all the help that he gave me and I, I do hope that I, again I get to work with him this year and we help to make ABC Grandstand even better. Matthew Elliott, we had a chat to him a couple of weeks ago in terms of this kind of thing, how he found the, the ride coming from an NRL first grade coach and assessed your performance as being a rare find. <laughs> How would you describe Matthew Elliott? He's completely different probably to the man you had in mind as, yes. a, as watching him as a, as, a, as a coach. Yes. As a coach, watching him, I thought he was very straight-laced, very down the line, very quite stern. Um, but that is obviously a facade, and he plays it. He plays the media the way that Wayne Bennett plays the media. That it's completely opposite. He is hilarious. He's extremely dry. His humour is hilarious, and as I said earlier, he's very, very incisive with his comments about the game, and he reads the game beautifully. And I love listening to him because, as I said, it does help me to expand my thought process. And he was doing that first round with Andrew Moore and Matty Elliott was a really great start to the ABC Grandstand family for me. Andrew Ryan, you spent a lot of time with him as well. We had a whole heap of Saturdays there where there were 
times that we'd have to be on air at two, but then the game wasn't on air till 7.30 and then we'd have to take talkback callers after that, 9.30 yeah. through to 10 o'clock. They were long days, but how did you like working with, with Bobcat this year? Loved working with Bobcat. I also particularly love Bobcat's beat where he tried to lead every single person that he interviewed to say that he was their favourite player from his hometown <laughs> and nobody ever fell for it. No. Nah. And uh, I think there was just one caller, Maureen, that rang in and yeah, said yeah. that uh, he was her favourite. So uh, he was fantastic. And then those days were those super, super long days and uh, Andrew would go out and, uh, you know, have a break and Bobcat would say, all right, I'm going down to the baths and going for a swim. If we're down at Cronulla, I'm going for a swim. <laughs> going to go for a swim. And maybe some sushi, and then I'll be back. And uh, if he was on the blackcurrant soothers, I believe those were the days that he was most left of field, for want of a better term. <laughs> Things got a little bit irky, and I think that was the night of the Warriors debate. Oh, the yeah, first the evening, great debate. The yeah. great debate of the Warriors, who were the players that went to the Warriors and, and got better. And then I, I may have played was, a role in that somehow. Yeah, I believe that you were <laughs> driving it quite heavily. <laughs> but in terms of just working with him on the like the the calls and stuff like that, I mean, Bobcat sort of made a bit of a transition this year from sideline where mm. you were working to being the the co commentator, and he really sort of thrived in in that situation yeah. in that he was able to sort of, I guess, match the energy of of Andrew during the call, and then you know have you on the sideline as well. So I really liked that sort of combination of you guys working together? How did you feel it sort of went? Yeah, I loved it. And I didn't realise that that was his first uh, time doing co-commentary because he was so natural at it. He was very, very good at it. Again, another uh, player that reads the game extremely well, and obviously he captained his club, he's played at a high, extremely high level, so he knows the game inside out. But he brought it to the commentary not just as a stiff sort of ex-player. Oh, yeah, this this is what you do, Boba. He's very, very engaging and he really does drive different points within the conversation and within the commentary as well. So I thought that was uh, he did extremely well and I loved working alongside uh, those two and, of course, yourself. So what was that like in terms of being put into a situation where you'd obviously watched Andrew Ryan, you'd obviously seen Matt Elliott as a coach, then having to match their knowledge and, and I guess intellect in terms of a rugby league point of view, but also contribute in varying places where you had to have an opinion on issues. So quite often different things would come up and then we'd be asking for your opinion. Was that difficult to adjust to knowing that you had two other guys there or you were working with two or three different people that you were then asked your opinion of, of certain things? I think at first it was... Quite, I was I was in awe of it to start with, and it would uh, a lot of my commentary or my conversation would just flow along with what we were actually discussing, and then I it came to me when my, I found my my sea legs a little bit, and then said, well, actually, I do need to talk about what I'm passionate about, and you know, there were times where I did have to have a, a differing opinion, and that's all it is. It's just a different opinion. It's just a different viewpoint, and it creates more of a talking point. So I think it. Uh, being able to hold my own with those kinds of personalities was uh, really fantastic. But at the start, it was definitely like the duck on the pond where everything looked all right on the surface, but underneath the legs were going a million miles an hour. (laughs) 
you mentioned before that the the commentary actually helped your game. I'm really intrigued by that comment. Can you take us through that, like in terms of what you were watching and I guess hearing from other members of the team, then take it onto the field with you? What? How? How did that all sort of play out in your own mind? Yeah. Well, because for me, I've always been a student of the game. I, I love watching it and I love analysing it, which is why I jumped, absolutely jumped at this role. I don't think Andrew barely asked me if I was interested before I said yes uh, for the year. And so to be able to analyse high-level games almost every single week, you then start watching other games in a not a critical fashion but in an analytical fashion where you break things down and then I would sort of think, okay, well, that, actually, that's a really good move. I quite like the way they're moving this and they're moving that. And then, you know, you sort of take it into when you go to training and you start playing and then when you're describing things to other players, you say, well, here, this is this. Here, watch this clip of the game that happened on the weekend, X, Y, Z. Have a look at what the spine were doing. Have a look at what the fronties are doing. Have a look at their field position. Look at how they're positioning the defence, blah, blah, blah. And so you could actually provide a little bit more... Um, tangible evidence to other players for want of a, a better term and that was to me I found really helpful because some players you can tell them and they can do it and some players need to see it before they can perform it as well so being able to have those kinds of examples at my fingertips to help back up whatever I was saying uh, made it a, a lot easier. Talking about developing your skills and, and taking the women's game further was it rewarding in many facets that you were being employed to give your views on the game rather than just, as I mentioned before, having the women's view on the women's game in order to provide more publicity for what your game was about? Yeah, it was extremely challenging, but also one of the most rewarding things I ever did all year. Because it was, as you said, it wasn't a token gesture. It wasn't being an interview on how the women's game is going or how the women's game is tracking. It was being employed to discuss the men's game or just, or just the discuss game. the game. Not even the men's game, just to discuss the game and my viewpoints on uh, what was happening within the game, what certain players were doing within the game, how it was being played, how they were being managed all these sorts of things, I think that is extremely important that that's, that was my role. And to me, that was very, very difficult because I think a lot of people to start with thought, what's this chick? Who, who does this chick think she is? No, but I no, I think when, the overwhelming feedback that we got was, how good's this? Like, so that from, it wasn't an eye-opener from our point of view because that's exactly what we wanted. Like, we wanted yeah. you to be talking about as we sort of just said there, not just the women's game, the game. Yeah. So. Absolutely. And it was, uh, and I think as it, as it went on, I did get a lot of feedback saying, you know, just listen to one of Rowan's commentary. Uh, hadn't looked at that, hadn't looked at it from that perspective before, but now that I watch that play, I see what she's talking about. And um, because we were, I think we were discussing something about a try was scored and uh, one of the uh, Callers said, "Well, actually, how did how did that try happen? Or oh, it must have been the wingers' fault." Well, actually, no. It was two plays b- before when the middles overcommitted through there, and they didn't they didn't track back quickly enough. Then they didn't push. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that actually makes sense." And to help educate people on the game is really fantastic. 
He wouldn't have worked a lot with Gene Halitau this year, but he was someone else that was new to the role as well. Um, and like I said, working with Corbin Middlemass, who it's his second sport. He calls the AFL, um, originally based in Perth, but was Andrew's backup this year. You worked a lot with him. What was it like knowing that you were probably in a situation where, you know, you weren't the only newbie, as it were? Yeah, it was... It was good. It was not... Uh, it was just different. Uh, there were, it wasn't worse. It wasn't better. It was just a different a different vibe. And you'd roll along a different way. So with uh, Andrew and Bobcat and sometimes uh, Matty, there'd be a certain vibe going on. And then with Corbin and Johnny Gibbs, there'd be a different vibe happening. And, uh, you know, just having those... Uh, working with different groups of commentators, I think, did help me to become better as the year progressed. Working there while you're calling your brother's games must have been difficult at times. I remember asking you what it was like and you said, I try not to make eye contact with them. (laughs) If we can go into the flip side of it, what kind of feedback did they give you when they knew you were on the sideline for their games? Or did they not know sometimes and then all of a sudden they'd be running out and you'd be sitting there on the sideline? Oh, no, I would always tell them if I was doing their game so that they didn't (laughs) sort of go, oh. What's going on here? But then again, we do. We have a family WhatsApp, so we're pretty much messaging each other 20, 30 times a day about inane things. But uh, so I always did let them know, just so that they weren't surprised. You know, don't want to throw, not that throw them off their game, but it's at least it's a known entity when I get there, uh, and then at least they know that they're going to be grabbed for comment after the game, pretty much. <laughs> Was that weird? interviewing them after a game? No, it was fantastic. And I think it was especially that round one game, my very first game with uh, the team and Tarek's first game of 2018. And when I walked out onto the field, he gave me a massive hug and kiss and we were walking along and I think... I thought you were going to walk out of this bloody stadium (laughs) at one stage. When we walked down arm in arm and having having a chat on the radio and I think that was a really lovely really lovely moment and I had a lot of uh, people on social media contacting me with photos from that that moment it was really really nice so it was fantastic watching them but as as I said to you I I did need to pull myself back a little bit and not be uh, not ride the game as much as I would normally if I was just sitting at home on my own screaming at the television. I remember at one stage Regan Campbell Gillard your cousin who you interviewed a few times throughout the season I think towards the end is don't talk to me again (laughs) He's, he's he's a funny character, but he's been rewarded a lot for his play this year, being selected with the, the Kangaroos for the, the World Cup and stuff like that. He's a real emerging talent, isn't he? Yeah, and he's a big unit too. So he was a victim of my... Uh, um, interviews a lot, especially when the Panthers were on the losing side of the scoreline uh, because most of the players did scarper off quite quickly and I just hung around where his mum was, my auntie, and would grab him on the way, so <laughs> he had no choice. <laughs> but uh, he was rewarded and, again, rewarded with playing in the World Cup final, not just being part of the squad but actually getting to play and being a world champion uh, last year. That was a pretty phenomenal effort. And... You've got strong ties to Fiji. Mm -hmm. Your brothers at varying stages have all played for Fiji. What was that like watching them playing for a different country at the World World Cup? Yeah, I was really disappointed that both Tarek and Corbin had been ruled out through injury because they they need surgery. So it was, uh, I believe it was probably Ashton's last World Cup. 
uh, playing for Fiji and it would have been amazing to have four siblings playing in the One World Cup and five family members if you include yeah. Reggie uh, with the Kangaroos. So it was uh, always, it's always proud watching the boys play for Mbati and I was riding every game, especially that New Zealand game when they won. I could not believe it. Not a try was scored, but it was probably the most exciting game of the World Cup for me. And Ashton has pretty much, I guess, laid the the path for you guys in terms of like a family. So Mm -hmm. representing St George, Illawarra, first of all, then going up to Brisbane and then Mm -hmm. overseas. He's had quite the adventure, hasn't he? So playing in the UK Super League and now off to the Toronto Wolfpack as well. Yeah, he really, really has. He's definitely forged the way uh, with the professional rugby league. As you said, he started off with the Dragons, went to the Broncos, also was at the the Cowboys, and then over to Warrington and, and now with Toronto. He's been everywhere, and everyone thinks that he's really old, but he's actually not. He's only 31. <laughs> 32. 32? Yeah, 32. How old am I? He's 32. So... Uh, he has had a really long and successful career playing rugby league and, you know, not a lot of players have the longevity that he's had and he's played in three World Cups now, I believe. That's incredible. It's a great achievement, it's isn't it? It's an amazing achievement and to be a professional rugby league for the extended period of time that he has is is absolutely, it's just epic. Like he made his first grade debut in the front row at the age of 17. That's unheard of these days. You would never hear, you'd hear a winger. Or a, or a fullback or a centre coming in at 17 years of age, but not a fronty. No way, no way in heck would you throw a 17-year-old in the middle of that field. But he, he went in there and he did it, and he's had a career doing it for the last almost 16 years, and I think that's pretty phenomenal. Your own path to rugby league sort of probably didn't take, a, I guess, a traditional way. I think mm. you're involved in... The surf club side of things, you're involved in, in rugby union more so before um, taking it on in, in rugby league. How would you describe your progression to were you the first contracted women's player, Cronulla? Um, and obviously we'll talk about the competition that is going to be implemented in, in 2018. Take us through your own personal journey. Obviously it has a, a strong family connection with your brothers, as we've mentioned, playing the game. What, what was your ascension to the the rugby league, I guess, community? Yeah, it was. Well, I did start playing rugby league when I was little. So I played with the boys in the under sevens and eights up until I was 10 or 11 and girls couldn't play any longer after that age group. So it, uh, I had to give it away. Went played basketball and did surf club and all the, the usual sorts of things. You know, down in Gerringong, the cycle of life was footy in winter, surf club in summer, and that's just how you rolled year on year. And, and then in... 1999, I believe it was. Last century. Yes. 98? Maybe it was 98. 98, 99. We uh, were down at Kaima watching the boys play for the Kaima Cows Rugby Union. So the boys played both codes. They got to play rugby league and rugby union. And uh, we were down there watching first grade play and giving first grade a bit of a ribbing because they hadn't won a game in forever. And one of the boys made a smart quip and said, I'm sure you girls couldn't do any better. We thought, oh, hang on, here we go. Well, well, why don't we try? So uh, we put together a team down at Kayama and uh, the next year we won the competition. It was only tennis, rugby tens. Uh, won the competition in 1999. I was uh, selected for the New South Wales and Wallaroo squads that year and uh, very fleet of foot 
I have got mail about about you knowing you that as, as I do now as that strong, forceful front rower. My mail around the Jeringong region or Wollongong area is that, as you mentioned there, fleet of foot. A whippet <laughs> was described to me as you were in your basketball days. Yes, yes. Yeah, I do my research yeah, here. Yeah, well, see, this is the thing. I'm still quick. No one gives me the opportunity. They just shove my head in scrums <laughs> and tell me to push. <laughs> if, you, if you give me space, I'm quick. Watch so, me, watch so, me so if a centre goes down in a game, you're going to be the first one to put your hand up to make the transition? <laughs> no way in hell. Chip I'll and chase out, part of the I'll, game? Yeah, yeah, well, I'll go out to the second row and uh, push the second row out into the centres. But you do see me uh, try and show my wares when I always do try and get in dummy half when we're in close to the line and uh, feed the ball out. So were you grateful for that opportunity, the fact that, okay, rugby union pretty much allowed you to push forward in a, in a pathway where you sort of said that rugby league didn't actually have that going on at that moment? And then it must give you great joy, the, the fact that within half a generation, we've seen a complete flip-flop in terms of just how rugby league is has has changed its stance, how it's grown in popularity, particularly mm. for the for the women's game. But taking that opportunity on in, in a different sport, rugby union mm. must have been something that you were able to sort of look at it and see it as an opportunity to further your skills in in a in a, in a game that still had that same sort of. I guess passion and aggression and and everything like that. Yeah, I was and bodily con- contact. Yes, contact. And I'm extremely grateful for my time in rugby union because I it did give me an opportunity to, as you said, hone my skills and to be a good footballer. And um, I was very very fortunate that with with the ten or eleven years that I was in the Wallaroos, the the women's squad, Australian women's squad, uh, we I went to three World Cups. And uh, we had some really good finishes. 2010 was the best finish we ever had. We came third, which was phenomenal for Australia because we were not uh, full-time, we were not professional, and the other countries, the other top-tier countries were. Uh, So that was an excellent finish for us. And in 2009, I was fortunate enough to be part of the the sevens team that won the World Cup in Dubai in 2009. So, so you're a three-time world champion, not a two-time yes, world champion. I am. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You've gone up now in the estimation. <laughs> I'll have to go back and record the intro. But, yeah, yeah. so you're definitely the, the first two-time world champion and three-time world champion we've had on this podcast. Yeah, so it's rugby union afforded me some amazing opportunities. Uh, in 2010, after 2010, I started to feel a little bit stale. I was feeling like I wasn't uh, probably as passionate about uh, the game as I had been for the previous 10 or 11 years and I did need a little bit of a break and that was when I uh, started to, I applied for the New South Wales Fire and Rescue and uh, thought, right, well, I'll just take a bit of time off and and concentrate on my life outside of football. Uh, Again, me being me didn't last very long and uh, a girl that I had played uh, rugby union with for Australia, uh, she was starting a rugby league team out at Penrith of all places and I lived in Bondi and she said, look, I just need just need a couple of older heads to come in and just help out. Like, Would you be interested? And I said, all right, no worries, but look, I live in Bondi and I'm not too sure about how much I can come out and how often I can be there and, and that was... That was literally it from then. Then in 2012, I was selected in the All-Stars and and that just went on from there. So it was... So what was that transition like, going from rugby union to rugby league, a game that you played 
you mentioned as a, as a, as a junior, mm. um, to then sort of, I guess, ride that, ride, uh, ride that wave to, to where it is today. I mean, you must notice internally that the, the interest in the, the women's game has just, as Matt Elliott described, it's not a gradual increase. It is something that has grown exponentially in the last probably even three years. Yeah, I believe since the last World Cup, it's exploded. The women's game has exploded onto the onto the main stage. And a lot of that has to do with, obviously, the product that we are producing, what we're doing on the field. But it also, you do have to put some, uh, you know, backing behind the NRL because they've said, right, well, the women's game... We need to do something with this. We need to showcase it. We need to bring it to the fore. We need to celebrate it more. And I think, which was one of the reasons I had started to lose a lot of uh, passion for rugby union, was that we had won a Sevens World Cup. You know, we were forging ahead. We were working on an Olympics bid. We'd helped uh, to win the Olympics bid. And yet nothing was progressing. We had no professional pathway in sight not even any discussion points surrounding it. All of the funding for the Sevens was coming from the Olympic Committee and it was a really difficult time for me personally, professionally. I, as I said, lost a lot of passion for the game then and then when Rugby League came out and I thought, well, they came, they came to me, the opportunity came to me and I thought, well, you know what, maybe I, I just want to give back a little bit more and I, I want to just go back to playing park footy and just enjoy myself without the pressure and then again me being me wanted to be the best that I possibly could be and when this sport got behind us and started uh, backing us the way we backed ourselves I knew I was onto a winner because it was the first time that a sport that I was giving so much to actually started giving some back and that made me want to actually give more to the sport which is then when I started doing the ambassador programs and then from there the opportunities that have presented themselves have been huge not just for me but for every single uh, female playing the game and that is the culmination of that is the announcement of uh, NRL women's competition in 2018 where previously the papers it was 2020, 2021 was when it was going to be happening. So that to see that acceleration in the timeline is so exciting. You are a pioneer in many respects when it comes to the, the women's game in, the, in this country. And as I said, you've pretty much forged that path regardless of your name association in the game. You forged your own identity when it comes to that. One of the things that you were very wary about was that fact that while the AFL launched their competition in, in 2017, you were very cautious in your, um, I guess, appraisal or assessment of the situation in the fact that you, you just don't want to be there just because you want to copycat the other code. You wanted to make sure that um, the women's game in, the, in this country was ready because you just didn't want a slapdash thing. Do you feel as if the game is now ready for that competition? I guess it's going to be launched in a smaller or modified way to begin with. Are you, are you comfortable? Are you satisfied with where the game is at to have that competition at the end of the year around the, the final series with the NRL? Absolutely. I, I really am. And you know, because obviously we spent a lot of time together over the last 12 months and 
you know my thought process on all of it and I think that what AFL did was amazing being able to uh, showcase their women the way they did have sell out crowds at their fields was absolutely amazing and to me I think what they did was a really brave step I think them and cricket and netball the women's games have all really forged a very strong path uh, for women's sport within Australia now for us as the NRL I actually think it's so exciting that we're going to be doing this competition at the time of year that we're doing it. Because every, if you look at all the other competitions, they're all at the start of the year, they're all before the season proper take off and sort of the, the warm-up or the lead-in to the rest of the year. I love the fact that we're going to put it on at the end of the year when the men are playing their finals and we're going to showcase the women's game at exactly the same time. I think that that is very apt and that final game for the women's will be played on grand final day. And that, to me, is so exciting because it really does show that the governing body, the value that they put in the game, to have us on at the same time as the final series, knowing that those games can stand up to the games that are going to be following, that, to me, is really exciting. So I think it's a wonderful wonderful timing for us. And also it gives us a lot of time to source new talent and to also do any kind of uh, combine or cross-talent from other sports, you can get them and you can actually start teaching them the game and getting them ready for the end of the year, preparing them for contact. Because I do know that that was one thing that uh, AFL did struggle with was uh, the the contact factor. And obviously rugby leagues has a lot more contact involved than AFL does. And you need to be able to learn how to fall safely, how to tackle safely, how to land safely. And this gives us a period of time to work in a professional NRL environment with professional coaches to ensure that we are in the right um, physical state and mental state to be able to play this level of football for that extended period of time. And over the years, it will grow to a full competition. I guess rugby league's also had that beautiful entree to this kind of thing in terms of being played as double-headers, test matches, World Cups. We've had State of Origin games now played before first-grade matches. So people are actually getting an appreciation for the game as lovers of the game. So it has been not just a complete sole focus on... Well, I don't want to say your game, but the women's game and then separate entity, the men's game. So the lovers, the purists, the lovers of the game have actually been able to look at the skill set that is on display and draw in those fans that are obviously fans of, of rugby league. So they're going to absorb that content. And I think a lot of people have been surprised at that. So it's now sort of snowballing into something that perhaps it's not segregated in its own entity like the, the AFLW is. Mm, it is, and I think that was one one thing that I love about our game is that if we do have the men's and women's games playing on the same day, especially when it gets to the point of hopefully in the future every NRL club has a women's team and then both teams, men's and women's first grade, will play on the same day. That way you're capturing entire families You've got uh, role models for your young boys and your young girls. You can take them all to the one game. You don't have to take half your family off to one sport in the morning to watch a professional game and for their favourite players and then half the family for you know, another sport in the afternoon or the evening because 
aside from things that can get very, very expensive for a family, a young family as well. And for any families that are just lovers of rugby league, to be able to take them and to see, as I said, wonderful role models, male and female, at the same venue on the same day, to them I think that is a a priceless experience. Talk to me about winning the state of origin. New South Wales on a bit of a roll after (laughs) a long, long drought. Um, Two in a row now. Playing for your state and playing for your country, that must just give you a great thrill to be also leaders of those particular um, teams as well. What's What's that like for you, like on a personal level? There is an extreme amount of pressure, but there is also an extreme amount of satisfaction. It wouldn't be more pressure than you put you on yourself, out. though. No, look, it is all, it is all probably uh, self-inflicted pressure, to be honest, but it is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Uh, there is a lot of pride when you stand there and you sing the national anthem, when you're in your state colours or when you're in the, the Australian colours and you're arm-in-arm with your teammates, singing the national anthem, looking into the stands and seeing your friends and family, or even right in front of us, you see the bench and the coaching staff all arm-in-arms as well. And it is very humbling. It is a very elating experience. It's a very stressful experience. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, when you come away with the win, it is is a wonderful feeling. You've had your setbacks over the years in terms of injuries and and different things like that. Mm -hmm. What keeps you motivated to keep going? Because, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, but you're heading towards the veteran stage. Um, How do you keep yourself motivated? How do you you keep yourself going? Is it these new challenges that are presenting themselves in terms of, okay, we've got this stepping stone going, we've made a success of the World Cup, but now the next challenge is being part of a a team um, or being part of a, a competition that is going to, as we said, be launched this year. It is. It's the challenges that keep me going, the challenges and the setbacks that, knock you for six, but they're also the same things that help to drive you and, and to push you to be better and to come in, to come back and just do your best. And, you know, I've had my share of them over the years, a lot over the last 12 months as well, and I think every time I come back, I'm that little bit stronger, I'm more resilient, I'm, I'm able to do more with it. It's, um, it is really, as I said, it's, it's also another humbling experience when you see the enormity of the task ahead and you know that you're not doing it just for you and I'm not. I'm doing it for six-year-old men that couldn't play rugby league from juniors all the way through to seniors. I'm doing it for the young under-18s girls that are looking for good, strong role models models within the game itself. They want to be professional but you know, they're not quite sure how it's going to work out. You know, I'm doing it for the girls or the women who sold their cars, took loans out just to go to World Cups over the years. You know, we're doing it, and it's not just me, it's everybody that's involved as a player. We're doing it to honour the people that have gone before us, and we're doing it for the, you know, the daughters of our generation coming through now. That's who we're doing it for. And these little challenges along the way, if you're involved in it, you have some degree of influence. And if I can help to make some decisions that push the game in the right direction, then that is what I think my role is. So it's uh, I'm always very humbled by the enormity of the task, but at every single day I wake up and, and I want to do more and, and to help push it. You're one of the 
busiest humans on the planet. <laughs> is time management one of your great skills? Because as we've discussed, NRL ambassador, player, broadcaster, then you work with the fireys at ungodly hours <laughs> on ungodly shifts. Like, how do you fit it all in? Because one of the things your brother Tarek mentioned when your mum was fishing out looking for, for a boyfriend for you was, <laughs> how's this guy going to keep up with her? Honestly. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe that is why I'm single. I, I don't have a lot of time in my, in my daily schedule for this. But it's, uh, you know, I've made a choice over the years. I, I don't have any children and I'm not married, so I have the time to commit to the sport that I love because that is what I've chosen to do with my life for now. Uh, in the future, that will change, obviously, and uh, not in the near future. So I have a lot more to do before I, I start. What's on the bucket list? Down. The bucket list? Yeah. Oh, every, I've got plenty on the bucket list. Yeah, we've got the NRL competition next year. You know, we're gonna, I'd love to go to Papua New Guinea next year for the Prime Ministers and the Governor Generals 13. I believe that's what the women are going to be called, Governor Generals right. 13. Right, awesome. So I uh, want to do that. I obviously want to win another State of Origin with New South Wales. That's important. Uh, the Commonwealth Games... Uh, exhibition matches are on next year as or this year as well for the women and the, the men so I want to be involved in that and uh, along the way we want to obviously make sure that we're a big part of the RLPA and maybe hopefully get our own CBA up and running uh, ensure that the players have minimum standards we need a maternity policy we need pregnancy policy, we need all of these things uh, happening so there is a lot there's a lot to do so retirement is, like, not even on the radar, no? Not yet. No, definitely not. Coaching? Yes. I'm very interested in coaching. I did a little bit of coaching, oh, dipped my feet in the waters at the end of the year. Last year I went over to Japan and did some work, uh, defensive work and, and tackle tech with the Sakura Sevens, the Cherry Blossoms, and I'll be doing some work with them again in a couple of weeks when they come over here for the Sydney Sevens. So... I'm definitely doing a little bit of that, plus more broadcasting I'm very interested in and more commentary. Uh, yeah, so, so you're just I looking don't have to in, time. You're looking to invent a 25th hour in the day so you can yes, fit it all in? Yes, I really am looking to, uh, to create uh, a little bit of extra time. If anyone has any scientific possibilities, come at me. We'll wrap it up in a sec. You've been really generous with your time given how busy you are, but you mentioned your six-year-old self earlier. What's your advice to somebody that is sort of considering following in your footsteps? Mm. Well, you know, it might, not, it might not be rugby league, it might not be sport, it might be business, it could be anything. But what I would say to that six-year-old is keep in your mind what it is you want to do. Keep it always in your mind. Have that as the thing you wake up thinking about and the thing you think about before you go to sleep. You might not make it there in a straight line. Actually, I guarantee it won't be a straight line to get there. It'll be, uh, you'll go loops, you'll go roundabouts, you go whoop-de-doos, you go whirling dervishes, you'll do everything along the way. But if you have a clear vision in your mind of what it is you want to do and you believe in it, just keep it. Keep it there, keep it close to your heart. And then everything that you do in life, it might seem... 20 kilometres away from where you actually want to be, but I guarantee you will come back to that and you'll find yourself there if that's what you really want, if that's what you're believing in. So it is just to keep that in the front of your mind and, and not let anyone deter you from, from that little goal that you have in your mind. 
and hot hands is what you referred to earlier, may be the greatest invention of all time. When you're sitting on the sideline in the middle of July, you discover a handy little product, if you'll pardon the pun, that keeps those frozen hands very warm um, <laughs> on a cold winter's night at Shark Park. Yes. Um, where did you pick them up? And I just love the fact that, like, you brought them along and you shared them because we both sort of, as you mentioned, sit on the sideline <laughs> yeah. and just sort of freeze our butts off. Yeah. Um, what are hot hands? Right, so two amazing discoveries last year. Number one were my leopard print gumboots. Yes, they were awesome. They're awesome, in which I wear my footy socks underneath or my work socks toasty and then the second were the hot hands now i can't think of the brand i think hotties maybe or something like that and something yeah. like that they're orange and red but as soon as you open the packet and expose it to oxygen it starts heating up and then you keep them in your little pocket so you, you dip your hands in your pockets and you want you know warm them up and then they come back out and you're feeling all right and uh I don't know why we started calling you Hot Hands. I think it was just because you showed the boys. Yes, I did. And then that was it. It just stuck. You'd be your Ralphie Hot Hands Tucker. And a few of the listeners were a little worried that maybe you were doing a Harvey Weinstein. Oh, no. I guarantee he wasn't. I guarantee he wasn't. Uh, Ruan Sims, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Ralphie. There she is, Ruan Sims, and I think you'll agree with me. She has a very bright future ahead of her in media when it comes to the sport of rugby league when she eventually decides to hang up the boots. If you really enjoyed today's chat with Ruan, send her a tweet and let her know that you heard it. She's at Ruan underscore Sims. You can also send us a tweet at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Also head along to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or review, subscribe to the show and let other people know about it. I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.